This podcast is brought to you by Qualcomm. Qualcomm engineers work tirelessly to invent the fundamental technology that makes your smartphone so indispensable. From download speeds to stunning photos to GPS to streaming video, none of it would work the way you count on without Qualcomm getting there first, then sharing it with the world. Yep, Qualcomm did all that. To learn more about the Qualcomm inventions that the rest of the tech world innovates on top of, visit qualcomm.com slash weinvent. Imagine a world without traffic jams, where computers use data to reroute cars and dissolve potential tie-ups before they even happen. It might be closer than we think. Quantum computers are a revolutionary way of computing that relies on the very strange laws of quantum physics to create machines so powerful they could instantly crack encryption, unravel digital currencies such as Bitcoin, and revolutionize whole industries, from aviation to pharmaceuticals. For decades, quantum computers seem the stuff of science fiction. But today, some limited and highly specific machines exist, and the race is on to build the world's first fully functional or universal quantum computer, able to do things no other machine can. The first commercial quantum computer was uh, available by D-Wave Systems. Google decided to create their own group. Microsoft expanded their quantum computing group. Uh, IBM also decided to create a near-term uh, device, startup. Uh, Rigetti Computing got funded and they decided to create their own quantum computer. Then now you have a lot of uh, approaches. And now quantum supremacy appears to be just around the corner. It's the tipping point where one of these machines does something impossible for any other computer. In part one of this two-part series, we look at how experiments at some of the world's best-known companies in fields as far-flung as health, financial services, and automotive are bringing us closer to the quantum age. This is the future of everything. A look ahead from the Wall Street Journal. From the newsroom in New York, I'm Jennifer Strong, and this is the future of everything. Hi, I'm Sarah Castellanos. I work for WSJ's CIO Journal, and I cover emerging technologies. That includes quantum computing, which she describes this way. When, for example, my parents ask me what quantum computing is, I tell them, think about it as sort of the next generation computer. Today's computers carry information in units called bits, which are either zeros or ones. But quantum bits or qubits can represent and store information in both zeros and ones at the same time. I mean, this is a faster, more efficient, completely new way of computing. Yes, it harnesses the power of quantum physics, and they'll say, "Well, what is quantum physics?" Microsoft founder Bill Gates recently told the Wall Street Journal. It's the one part of the company he truly doesn't understand. Saying, "Quote: I know a lot of physics and a lot of math, but the one place where they put up slides and it's hieroglyphics, it's quantum." As more people start talking about it in mainstream, as more companies come out and talk about their experiments with quantum computing, it'll be a little bit more accessible. But the science itself is very. It helps to start with a little thought experiment called Schrodinger's cat. The story goes something like this: You put a cat in a box with a bottle of poison. The poison bottle could be open with the cat dead, 
and the poison could be closed with the cat alive at the same time. Crazy as it sounds, scientists have proven atoms can exist in two states at once. It's called superposition, and it means a single particle can be in two places at the same time. The poison bottle is linked to the cat's outcome, symbolizing entanglement. That's what allows scientists to compute across quantum bits or qubits, and it's the basis of what allows a quantum computer to calculate things much, much faster than today's machines or so-called classical computers. It's okay to be confused. Even Einstein struggled with this. Tech giants across the globe are racing to try to build a so-called universal quantum computer, one that's fully functional and can be scaled to perform a wide range of computations. My name is Dario Gill, and I'm the vice president of artificial intelligence and quantum computing of IBM. IBM's T.J. Watson Research Center is about an hour north of New York City. One of the beautiful things that we can leverage. With a quantum machine, is now we can have instead of two states, we can have two to the n, where n is the number of qubits. I'm not limited to zeros and ones. Decades after physicist Richard Feynman introduced this idea of quantum computing, what have we learned? For one, it's really hard to control qubits. Qubits are fragile. If there's any change in temperature, noise, frequency, or even motion. Their quantum state will probably collapse. When you build a quantum computer, that basic kernel is this creation of these qubits, and these qubits are not perfect. They have errors in them. IBM, Google, and other companies are working on error correction algorithms, but those require additional qubits to check the work of the ones running the computations. We only have a window of time, which can be reasonably short. It may be only ninety, a hundred microseconds. With which we can perform useful computation. Now we are working in our laboratories to extend the window and time in which we can perform those computations. And as we keep extending it, at some point we will get to this universal fault-tolerant quantum computer. The longer a qubit can stay in that magical quantum state, the more time you have to do useful things with it. We head into the lab to see one of these machines. This is what a quantum computer looks like. At first, it's hard to tell what we're looking at. A large white cylinder hangs above us, called a cryostat. It's connected to a maze of racks and wires, and deep inside this cryostat sits IBM's tiny chip. Very often, we make the analogy that this is like the 1940s in computers, and you would see these computers that fill entire rooms. But what we're seeing here looks and sounds quite different. One one characteristic of quant of these quantum computers is that they're really beautiful. They're very very different, right? We're used to the square boxes and the chirping sound that、uh, you're hearing is the compressor working to be able to flow this mixium of helium through the dilution refrigerator to be able to cool it. So at the very bottom of it, we get toward 15 millikelvin. So very close to、uh, absolute zero. It's a hundred times colder than outer space at the bottom of it. The system requires extreme cold to work. My name is Jerry Chow, and we are in our quantum computing research lab here in、uh, Aisle Five of T.J. Watson Research Lab. He manages IBM's experimental efforts with quantum computing. In this lab is where we do a lot of the work in order to develop better and better quantum processors. 
This is where we explore things like materials and the way that we characterize the system so that we can make improvements to the way that we control our devices so that they're ready for building these quantum processors which end up you know, going online or going to clients for people to actually make use of for science. They kind of look like large beer kegs, and, and you certainly hear the noise, which corresponds to these cryo compressors that keep them running and keep them cold. He has one of these cryostats open for us to look at. Inside, there's an organized tangle of tubes and wires in gold, copper, and silver. It's all very steampunk. It goes inside of a bunch of shields, which allow us to protect the device from radiation and uh, other additional noise. There's also a whole suite of electronics and components that sit outside of the refrigerator, and these are used to control the qubits that that we have in our quantum processor. Then we get a closer look at actual qubits under a microscope. This printed circuit board has a number of inputs and outputs that allow you to drive the chip with microwaves. And Can I and take a seat? yes. All right. Are you able to describe what I'm? What yeah. I'm sure. So so. What you see is essentially the piece of silicon with various superconducting metallic traces that are on it. And those metallic traces define circuits. And some of those circuits, in fact, contain what are known as Joseph's injunctions, which form the basis of our quantum bit or qubit. IBM recently launched the Q network. Companies work with researchers to experiment with quantum computing use cases that make sense for their businesses. My name is Bob Stolte, and I'm the Chief Technology Officer for Equities at J.P. Morgan's Corporate Investment Bank. J.P. Morgan is looking for ways the technology could be useful to the financial services industry. Financial modeling, pricing of our instruments, running risk scenarios, valuation at risk scenarios. There's a lot of things that, you know, literally we do every day in the investment bank and and in J.P. Morgan more broadly, all of which if and when the technology develops to a point that it surpasses what you can do with an existing computer, all of which could be much quicker. And it could allow you to do more risk scenarios. It could allow you to model instruments in ways that you can't today. That's because modern trading and portfolio management require a great deal of computing power. So one way in which you try to determine how something will behave in the future is you look at lots of ways that things have behaved in the past. And so, you know, you run countless scenarios of if volumes were higher or lower, if prices were higher or lower, if the price of a stock or or a trading pattern of something were to behave one way or another way. And you need to process all that information through these algorithmic models to come up with all these different scenarios and really probabilities associated with them. It takes an enormous amount of, of computing power. You know, we've moved from what seemed very, very theoretical to what was in some sense, you know, a prototype, almost a toy. But the the reason that people are starting to get excited and engaged is because we are on the doorstep of that potentially changing. Sometimes people think it's crazy what we do. That's Volkswagen CIO Martin Hoffman in Berlin. He's referring to VW's experiments with quantum computers. The first one that we um, worked with is a company called D-Wave in, in, in Canada, and uh, their approach to quantum computing is called quantum annealing. This approach is useful for solving optimization and logistics problems. One thing that comes to mind immediately is traffic optimization, because we all know what it is to be in a traffic jam. The question is, can we use um, a quantum processor with um, more or less infinite compute power to dissolve traffic jams before they even happen. VW ran this experiment with data from one of the world's most congested cities, Beijing. So we used available data from taxis in the city of Beijing 
And basically what we did was uh, first start predicting based on the data where traffic jam is going to happen and then move that over to the quantum computer to let it dissolve the traffic jam by optimizing every single car in that in that traffic cloud. And by doing that, we could demonstrate that that problem could be applied successfully to a quantum computer using uh, the D-Wave machine. It calculated the fastest routes to the airport while completely minimizing traffic congestion. Other computers would have taken 45 minutes to complete this task, but for a quantum computer, it took... Under a second. Though he says it'll still be a while before we see this applied in real life. It doesn't mean that you can prevent any traffic jam in the future in the world, but at least now we have an inroad where we know um, what kind of technological approach we could, could use to make traffic much more manageable. Hoffman thinks quantum computing could also improve the batteries in electric cars. For that, VW is partnering with Google. The idea is to, to develop an algorithm that allows to simulate the battery behavior because it's very close to quantum physics. He says there's presently no simulation software for these batteries, so you have to build prototypes. With quantum computing, Hoffman believes he could simulate their behavior much faster, and that could lead to reduced charging time. VW is also working with Google to explore how AI and quantum computing could work in tandem. If you can combine quantum computing and AI, that's a very powerful uh, combination because you get uh, incredible compute power with the capabilities we all know about AI. And self-driving cars uh, requires a lot of algorithmic development. So we could use that, that approach to help develop algorithms for self-driving cars in a different way. And he says companies need to get on top of these developments now. I mean, if you just do the math and um, follow the idea of exponential growth in technology, it's going to be harder and harder to catch up. Technology is not an excuse anymore. You can do anything with technology. The technology is not a limiting factor. My name is Davide Venturelli. I'm science operations manager at the USRA of the Research Institute for Advanced Computer Science. We run a program at NASA on the Quantum Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. He believes NASA helped spark the now widespread industry interest in quantum computing. Our group was the first to believe in potential near-term applications and to give also some trust to uh, the first commercial quantum computer, which was uh, available by D-Wave Systems. NASA held a conference in 2012 called Quantum Future Technologies. And that conference uh, was the seed for the creation of a research group and then for uh, Google to decide to back financially the, the project. And, and this uh, really gained the attention worldwide. And shortly after our group uh, was founded, Google decided to create their own group. Microsoft expanded their quantum computing group. Uh, IBM also decided to create a near-term uh, device. The startup uh, Rigetti Computing got funded and they decided to create their own quantum computer. Then now you have a lot of approaches. We work with uh, Rigetti, we work with Google, we work with IBM, we work with D-Wave, and we have uh, access to their prototypes and we experiment with them heavily by suggesting modifications, improvements, and by, most importantly, trying to use them for something somewhat useful. So problems which are in optimization, problems which are the design of best routes, the design of best schedules, the design of best circuitry in drug discovery, for sure. It's also in um, other aspects, for example, catalyzers or 
fertilizers. So there are certain chemical compounds that could have a tremendous impact, even uh, climate change or uh, in how we efficientize agriculture. The question is, can we do it? It's not an engineering challenge. It's not like how to go to Mars. We know we can go to Mars. We went to the moon. We know it's possible. Okay, But we're not 100% sure that quantum computing will allow us to solve the problems we want uh, as fast as we, as we want. And we don't know if that's possible even in principle. What, what we will learn in this journey is much more than having a computer which solves a problem faster, which is nice. But we, we will really learn how the world works and potentially even some uh, whys of uh, why the world works. The entire industry is still nascent. Again, the Wall Street Journal's Sarah Castellanos. But a few executives from these companies have spoken about the importance of investing in this emerging technology now so that their employees and their customers will be totally ahead of the curve when quantum computers do become scalable and widely available. One of these is the biotech company Biogen. They completed an experiment last summer that showed that quantum computers have the potential to speed up drug discovery for diseases like multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. So through a partnership with Accenture and OneQubit, Biogen tested how quantum computers could help speed up the process of molecular matching. This is an important step in early phase drug design and discovery because basically the structure of molecules and their chemical features can be used to predict positive and negative effects of specific drugs on the human body, like, for example, the toxicity of a molecule. Molecular matching is a process that takes classical computers a really long time with many steps. So it's been described to me as it's kind of like comparing a triangle and a square where the computer would start by comparing one corner and then an edge and then another corner and so on, rotating the molecules and seeing how they match up. So quantum computers can essentially be aware of all of the different overlaps simultaneously. It takes a very long time for drugs to be discovered and then go from discovery to trial and eventually to, you know, the pharmacy. And if there's any chance that we can use a computer or a new type of computing method to help speed the process along, that could be absolutely revolutionary. In a moment, a look at our next episode. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. The show is produced by Laura Sim. John Wardock is the executive producer of WSJ Podcasts. Stan Parrish is the editor-in-chief of The Future of Everything. This episode was co-produced by The Wall Street Journal's Sarah Castellanos, with special thanks to Jack Nickus, Stephen Rosenbush, and Tom Loftus. Thanks, too, to Dr. Stephen Gervin at Yale and Dr. Daniel Ladar at the University of Southern California for their help with the science. In our next episode, we get an airborne physics lesson over a mountain range in Montana as we take a closer look at the different bets by computing giants in the global race for quantum supremacy. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong from the newsroom in New York.